Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that the Tesla Model S scored five out of five stars by the National Highway Safety Administration in the U.S. That's the highest score any car's ever had in the history of the automobile. It was so good that it even broke the machine that was supposed to crush the car during a rollover test. So that's what I call bulletproof. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's guests are, uh, are unusual. I have no, uh, uh, no financial ties, no incentive uh, to be working with these guys, but it's phenomenal work. And it's two guests today. One of them is Eric Marola, who's an international award-winning documentary filmmaker, and Ralph Moss, who's a PhD, the executive director of CancerDecisions.com, and the former assistant director of public affairs at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, and also a founding advisor to the NIH Office of Alternative Medicine. The reason that I've asked these guys on the show today is to talk about their new movie, which is called Second Opinion, which is a really incredible story about how a young science writer, uh, Ralph Moss as a young man, uh, risked 
his entire career by blowing the whistle on a cover-up involving cancer therapy. Now, Ralph, you and I haven't had a chance to talk in person before, but I run the Silicon Valley Health Institute. It's an anti-aging nonprofit group based in uh, Silicon Valley, obviously, <laughs> based in Palo Alto. And for 20 years, we've had luminaries in anti-aging and alternative medicine come in and give lectures once a month, and we've got many years of video online for free. And in that time, I've had more than a few people call me and say, Dave, I have cancer. I have really, really bad cancer. What do I do? And my answer is, look, I'm not a doctor, and I know a few things about a few alternative treatments. But if you want to see someone who's done the, the analysis from a scientific perspective, looking at both alternative and Western medicine, you always go to cancer decisions. So I've referred countless people to your, to your work because I consider it to be open-minded yet science-based uh, review. And, and if I was looking a diagnosis of cancer in the face, I would want the information that you do. So you've already earned my respect long before you made this movie. In fact, it's the depth of your own research and the research that I've read that actually made me want to invite you on the show. So number one, thanks for that work and welcome to the show, Ralph. Thank you very much. If you're watching on iTunes and, uh, or on YouTube, uh, you can see Eric, but you don't see Ralph because uh, Ralph's audio and video connection wasn't good enough. So we've got the best audio we can get there. And uh, you'll be looking at Eric most of the time. And Ralph, sorry, we're not looking at each other eye to eye, but uh, still, it, it's a pleasure to get to speak to you in person. Same here. Now, Eric, you've also got a kind of a cool story here. You worked uh, as, on part of Michael Moore's feature documentary, Capitalism, A Love Story. And you're now, in, this is your third documentary that you're working on? Correct. That's right. I, before doing my own documentaries, I've worked in animation and post-production and TV and film for a long time. And yeah, I, I did a really hilarious sort of animated bit uh, for Capitalism, a Love Story, um, where George Bush was basically um, telling the world that every, all the whole financial system, financial system is going to collapse. And so I animated sort of all hell breaking loose behind his, his uh, you know, speaking at the podium. Oh, nice. <laughs> now... I, I want to sort of interview both of you, which, which is a little tough over Skype, but it's it's kind of cool because both of you are very accomplished people and you're both high performing, but you came together. And how did you guys come together to make this movie? Um, did you know each other ahead of time or I mean, did, did, is there a good story there? I'll start actually with that um, and I'll let Ralph can, uh, pick it up. Essentially, uh, living in New York City, long train rides home, I always like to have my friend, my book, and my backpack just to have something to read. I was walking by a used bookstore in New York City, saw a book titled The Cancer Industry sitting on the outside sort of bargain bin shelf. It had been published around 1980. The title just really caught my eye, sounded interesting, also wasn't very much money. <laughs> and I read it, <laughs> and I, I couldn't put it down. And I just, I must have read it 10 times. I was filled with highlights and post-it notes. And um, again, I never made my own documentary film at that point, but it was, I felt, wow, what an amazing story as a subject for a documentary film. So I actually made an attempt to uh, get Ralph to do this back in 2007. And I think it was just bad timing for him. And I had no real documentary credentials to speak of at the time. And I went off in another direction and did two documentaries based on another chapter in his book about a, uh, a scientist named Dr. Brzezinski. But then you know, we came back around again, and I presented it to Ralph again, and he uh, agreed. And in fact, I'm happy we waited because I've learned so much as a filmmaker, and I couldn't be more proud of this final product of, this, of Second Opinion. I just don't know if it would have been nearly as good if I had done it back in 2007. So that's sort of the short story. 
That's amazing. And, and Ralph, I mean, your your experience in the cancer industry goes goes way back. What made you decide to do a documentary now versus a while ago? Well, I think I ever had to convince me because, I mean, aside from, you know, his his experience or lack of experience in the film business, um, you know, I ask you, when, when you, when you go through some sort of traumatic experience, as I did at Stone Kettering, and then you publicize it, and I was I did a lot of publicity around my book, The Cancer Industry, starting about 1980. But then I went on and I did a lot of other things in the cancer field. And I have a lot of other thoughts about other than just Laetrol. Laetrol was the was this subject that got me, sort of propelled me into this field, or at least as a public figure in the field. But... I felt like I wanted to move on from it, but Eric convinced me really that the story hadn't been told. First of all, I mean, a whole new generation of people had arisen, many of whom weren't alive in in the 1970s when this all occurred. My book, uh, Cancer Industry, was sort of, as as Eric said, sort of relegated to the the bargain basement uh, shelf at Strand Bookstore. And more importantly, as it turned out, there was a lot more to, to learn and to say about Laetrile. I guess I was too close to it in, in the 1970s and 1980 to realize what a, what a fascinating story it was, what a fascinating compound it is, and what real potential it still has as a, uh, a possible treatment for cancer. So once uh, Eric and I decided to do the film, about three years ago, four years ago. Then I started my own sort of reinvestigation of this whole Laetrile question, Laetrile controversy. And I actually wrote a book that came out recently called Doctored Results, which is a a very detailed 250-page analysis of exactly what happened at Sloan Kettering, stuff that we couldn't go into in the film, and a lot of stuff, frankly, that I discovered and realized um, after we shot the film, after we did the filming, which was in 2012, um, I kept working on the book, and the book came out this year, and I mean, I'm sort of still kind of blown away by the, the, how diabolical this was, even though I was involved in it, and was a little, uh, uh, sort of a pawn in their game, but, um, you know, this, the, the, I subtitled Dr. Results, The Suppression of Laetrile at Sloan Kettering Institute of Cancer Research, and I thought long and hard over that title uh, was the word suppression to uh, sensationalistic, sensationalist, but it isn't. It's actually what happened. A, a good and a promising treatment was suppressed because of personal reasons and economic reasons on the part of the leadership of the institute that I worked for. So what was the treatment? Like, tell, tell people who are maybe driving right now and aren't familiar with what Laetrile is, tell them where it comes from and how it got even to be of interest as a cancer compound. Right. Laetrile is just really just another name for amygdalin. Amygdalin is a, is a common chemical found in the fruit pits 
of various uh, of fruits of the apple, apricot, peach, almond family. That's the that, that's a whole big family of trees. And there's the pit. And then if you take a hammer or or a nutcracker, uh, you open up that pit. Inside, there's a, a softer, more edible portion called the kernel. And these kernels, these apricot pits and kernels, are pretty much a waste product of the apricot canning industry. So the price on them is very, very low. This is very important to understand. They're almost a throwaway item. A, a, a man named Ernst Krebs, who was a, a graduate student, uh, Ernest Krebs Jr. was a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley. And for various reasons, none of which were terribly good in retrospect, he developed the idea that these kernels would be useful in treating cancer. Now, he may or may not have known that in traditional Chinese medicine, peach kernels are used as a treatment for lung inflammation and lung diseases. So he lived in San Francisco, you know, within walking distance of Chinatown. And I've often wondered whether part of his quote-unquote research wasn't going around and, you know, talking to these traditional Chinese healers, or it was just a huge coincidence. Um, his name is Krebs. Is he related to the Krebs of the Krebs cycle, the citric acid cycle for cellular? No, different guy. Cool. Another coincidence, and Compound the coincidence, the word Krebs in German means cancer. <laughs> it also means crab. Uh, of course, crab is the word cancer in Latin, means crab, and it means the disease cancer. And in German, it's the same deal. Krebs in German means crab, or it means cancer. So here's this, these cancer researchers who have the name cancer, and he was a little crabby at times, too. So, you know, maybe he would. <laughs> And maybe it pertained in, in that way as well. But in any case, he and his father, uh, Ernst D. Krebs Sr., who was a physician in San Francisco, and another brother, uh, the, the three of them basically invented this substance, and they gave it the name Laetrile, which they, they thought they had invented a unique patentable product, but... Uh, they never were really able to make that product. So really from the beginning, which was the early 1950s, they were marketing amygdalin, manufacturing it in their basement, uh, uh, marketing it, and calling it Laetrile. There's a, this is the source of a tremendous amount of confusion. Even to this day, there was a paper published just a couple of months ago where uh, very bright scientists in Germany doing wonderful work, but they sort of got it a, a little bit wrong in terms of the relationship between laetrile and amygdala. For all practical purposes, these are the same things. So what happened next was, and how I became involved, was that there were so many people who believed that laetrile was beneficial to cancer patients. They got up a petition of 43,000 people to ask the President of the United States, Richard Nixon at that time, to test Laetrile in humans. And Nixon didn't know what to make of this. Uh, he, he gave it to his so-called cancer czar. The cancer czar, Benno Schmidt, was also an officer of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. So he then asked his cancer center 
to test this. And they started testing it in 1972. And then uh, I came on in 1974. I was hired uh, as science writer and later assistant director of public affairs at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And so they were already, the program of testing Laetrile in animals was already well underway by the time that I got there. So it, it was basically invented in the, the 40s, and it was already being tested because these guys had basically started selling it. So honestly, that's kind of the classic recipe for, you know, the, the for it being a scam, right? You know, you, you could, we had these traveling medicine people back in the Old West kind of thing. So, so it, it didn't start out looking pretty, but what happened during the trials? So everything about it, I would say, was sort of crying out that this was a, you know, a quack remedy, a useless remedy and so forth. And that's the way the medical profession dealt with it, even to the point of, um, let's say, not reporting any positive results with it, only only emphasizing the negatives. But film kettering was objective uh, initially, and they wanted, they were interested in testing, as by, as by big boss, Robert A. Good once said, we'll look at it, we'll test anything, and if it has any promise at all, and they were good to their work for a couple of years. The test that they put it through, initially, everybody was testing it in transplanted tumors. It didn't work. So then they decided, well, give it one more try. We'll try it in spontaneous tumors in animals, which were then becoming more like a human tumor, a tumor that arises without being injected with a carcinogen or injected with cancer cells would be a more typical of what happens in a human being, a tumor that arises spontaneously in the animal. So they gave it to their best researcher, who was also retired. His name was Kanematsu Sugiyora. And he tested it in special kind of mouse that spontaneously developed cancer in 80 to 90 percent of cases. It developed breast cancer and then the breast cancer metastasized or spread to the lungs of these animals. And lo and behold, it worked. It stopped the spread of the cancer, which is the most important thing that a drug could do because 90 percent of the people who die of cancer, even today, die of uh, metastases, of the spread of the cancer to vital organs. So now it didn't cure the cancers. It didn't particularly shrink the tumors. It, it stopped or slowed the growth of small tumors temporarily, but it had this enormous effect on the metastases. And based on his 60 years of research, he said that it kind of looks like a vitamin because the coats of the animals become shinier, they become frisky, even on the day that they're injected, by the afternoon of the morning that they're injected, you can see the difference in their behavior. And he, as I say, this man co-invented chemotherapy. He wow. did the original wow. research going back to 1909 on cancer uh, in animals. There was no greater expert in the world on testing drugs in animals than Dr. Segura. So you had to listen. I mean, I wouldn't know the difference between a healthy mouse and a sick mouse, but he did. And he said this was, you know, pretty remarkable. But the most important thing, and the thing we have to keep our eye on, this was the best agent 
ever discovered up until that point in stopping the spread of cancer, the most important question that it confronts people treating advanced cancer. So what happened? Okay, I'll put it very briefly. In 1974, and again in 1975, the top leadership of Sloan Kettering, the presidents of the hospital, the institute, and the overall center, went to Washington and pleaded the case for Laetrile. They went to the National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, and then to the Food and Drug, and to the Food and Drug Administration, and the American Cancer Society was there, and other people were there, and they said, this stuff is working beautifully in animals, so we want to go ahead now and do a clinical trial. We've arranged to set up a clinical trial at a very good, very famous and important hospital in Mexico City called the November 22nd Hospital. They had identified people at that hospital who, who thought that Laetrile was of some interest, at least, to worthy of doing clinical trials. It, it wasn't a magic bullet, but it had some ameliorative benefits for patients. And they got shot down. We have the notes. Eric shows them in the film uh, of the meetings, but I don't think that the notes, I think the notes are sanitized. I don't think they show what really happened because the leaders came back after the March 1975 meeting, basically with their tails between their legs. I think somebody read them the riot act at that point. We know that the American Cancer Society was pressuring Robert Good, the president of Sloan Kettering, to let them handle all the publicity around Sloan Kettering's testing. And that's what happened. They, tur- they did an abrupt about-face, led by Lewis Thomas, who was the president of the center, and I think the person most culpable in all of this. I wanted to talk to Thomas after this happened. I couldn't understand why he had turned on a dime and gone from being at least neutral in public on the question to being completely lying about and denying, negating all of Segura's tests. So I asked my boss if I could talk to Thomas, and my boss said no, but I will talk to him, meaning himself, he would go. There was a little bit of rivalry between me and my boss because this was his most cherished contact in the center, the president of the whole center. So he went to talk, and we were on very close confidential terms, my boss and I. He would never lie to me or anything like that. And he came back, he was kind of uh, kind of red in the face, and he said, I asked Thomas and, and why he made these negative statements, and Thomas said, I'm not going to die on the barricades for Laetrile. It's only a palliative drug. If it were a cure, I might do so. But since it's only a palliative, meaning it only stopped the spread of the disease, it didn't destroy the tumors completely or, or remarkably shrink them, I won't die on the barricades. And I think that is the closest we have to insight into why they turned on a dime in March of 75, and then joined the crusade against Laetrile, when up until that point, for three years, they had been at least honest within the confines of the cancer establishment, and kind of neutral within, you know, in the public sphere. So then it became a nightmare 
uh, because we were then, as an institution, uh, upholding a lie. Everything we said and did about Laetrile from that point on was wrong, was suspect, it was tainted by the fact that these people individually and collectively had decided to sacrifice the truth about Laetrile, the truth as they themselves saw it up until the day they went to Washington, so for expediency's sake. So, you know, it's, one, it's, it's what makes the story, I think, both complicated and interesting, that it's not like a grade B thriller in the sense that there's the bad guys and there's the good guys and you know you know which kind of color hat each one wears. These guys could have been the biggest heroes of all. I mean, people would be making movies about them if they had just stuck to their guns. Good caved first, but it wasn't so important. When Thomas caved, Lewis Thomas, when he caved in, Everybody else ran for the exit. So why why was there so much pressure to, to cave? You're saying that the American Cancer Society was actively telling Sloan Kettering not to not to continue work with us. What was the motivation? They had put their mm-hmm. reputation on. They had put Laetrile as exhibit number one on their list of quack remedies. The public looked to them for truthful statements. Now they could have said. I think that most people would have understood if they had said, look, stuff happens. You know, we thought it was negative because there really was no good evidence that it was that it was a good treatment. But Sloan Kettering's now done this work. We're going to have to reconsider. That would have been the honest reaction. Instead, they panicked. And I think in some sense, they thought they could bluster their way through. I mean, it was almost like they thought that their ideas were the objective reality. I'm not putting this terribly well, but it was like they were so egotistical that they thought they determined what was what was real and not real. Not science determining, you know, not the outcome of a scientific experiment, but what their opinions were. And their opinions were, this is a bunch of dangerous quacks running around, telling, and you know, they saw all kinds of dangers here, some of which were real and some of which were imaginary. They were afraid that people would go to Laetrile instead of doing conventional therapy. 70,000 people did with all of their disapproval. Seven, at least 70,000 people did. Ran to Mexico to get Laetrile. So you could see why their world was crumbling. And there was a whole other group of doctors, not well credentialed, not really terribly brilliant or leadership quality from the, you know, I mean, the, these were the the people who took the anti-lateral stance were the highest-ranking people in all of medicine. This was the establishment. And up come these crazy, these, you know, kind of wacky people, from mostly from California, and they've got a theory that about cancer. By the way, they developed this into a whole other theory, which involved the John Birch Society and the Rockefellers and conspiracies and uh, this supposed... Anti-cancer vitamin. Who did all that? You're saying the American Cancer Society? Oh no, no, the Laetrilists. <laughs> okay, so so the, the the people who were taking it became cult-like in their belief that this was going to help them because they're grasping for life. So they over-marketed the stuff that they were clinging onto so they wouldn't die of cancer. That's kind of what happened. The people who were marketing it, uh. Uh, not the people taking it, 
but there became a lot of money involved in it. We, the U.S. government illegalized it, and it then became a black market item. And, of course, the price shot up, and then the government were hunting for the smugglers, and the John Birch Society got involved in this because the major parties wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole, and it became a circus. It was a complete circus. Yeah, yeah. And theories arose that this was not only the cure for cancer, but if you ate apricot kernels, you would be bulletproof <laughs> from cancer. You would not, never get cancer. And people were eating handfuls of apricot, which contained cyanide. So if you ate enough of the stuff, you'd kill yourself. And that was another area of concern. But, you know, there was ample reason why the establishment was worried about Laetrile. Uh, some people were abandoning good, effective, conventional therapies to take this very still unproven thing. I mean, it's basically everything I was talking about happened in animals, which doesn't necessarily convert into human affairs. So, you know, they thought they had good reasons to oppose this. The problem was their opposition then slid over into denial right. of clear-cut facts. And they couldn't, they couldn't stand the thought that this thing that they had fought for, for 25 years actually turned out to have some merit to it. It wasn't the merit that the quacks were saying, but it had merit that Dr. Segura showed very clearly. It stopped the spread of cancer. Uh, Nature had everything stacked up against it. I mean, think about it. You have an established quack remedy. You have the John Birch Society being its biggest supporter. You have the Laetrile proponents also not being honest and taking advantage of people. It was a mess. And then how, you know, Sloan Kettering, not to mention the fact that it's dirt cheap, nearly impossible to patent, impossible to regulate. You know, it just seems pretty obvious that they went, oh, my God, after they realized it worked. You know, we, they, we gave it our best shot in D.C. They said no, so I guess we're going to have to get in line and, you know, lie about it. it. Isn't it like a normal behavior? And, and Ralph, you would know this better, but if you have cancer and you've tried some traditional treatments or you look at the research and you find out that chemotherapy doesn't have very good statistical odds for, for your kind of cancer, I know that if I had that, I would be reaching for pretty much the whole a grab bag full of things that might potentially work. And if I could afford it, I would do all of them. Because, hey, like I'm going to die, and I'd rather die broke and uh, much later, rather, <laughs> rather than, you know, die wealthy of painful tumors. So it, it's... It's like cancer is a happy hunting ground for, for charlatans. It's true, I suppose, yeah. You know, you could, uh, we, we, we could brainstorm and, uh, and come up with some, you know, plausible sounding remedy uh, right here and now if we wanted to and sell it over the Internet and uh, we might make some money or we might make a lot of money. I've never, I've never done that, but it's something one could do and people do it. I mean, it sounds completely heartless, but that's the world that we live yeah. in. And uh, yes, people do get desperate, and it's a pro it is a big problem. The thing was, though, that the ACS, American Cancer Society, they up until 1975, they had a very neat. They lived in a very neat world. Their world was divided up between good, honest, effective remedies and ineffective, fraudulent quack remedies. And so, so that was a simple world for simple people, yeah. simpler times. Yeah. In 1975, they, the biggest jolt, something that's actually still reverberating today in the whole cancer world, they were convinced to remove three treatments from their unproven methods list. 
Uh, one of them was Coley's toxins, which was a bacterial, killed bacterial that vaccine that was an early form of immune therapy. There was another form of a vaccine or immune therapy removed from the list. And the third one was hyperthermia or heat therapy. So, you know, it was never acknowledged that they had ever made a mistake, but, it, but implicit in this was the idea that, you know, they were not infallible. And up until that point, they were like more infallible than the Pope. Anything they said, I mean, there, there were millions of people who believed anything ACS said was the truth about cancer. So their world got shaken by that. And then, of course, along comes the Laetrile. Now, if Laetrile works at any level, if it's biologically active in cancer patients and it's much less stops metastases, their whole world would have crumbled. I mean, their intellectual framework. And as we saw a few years later, you know, they really succumbed to their, uh, to, in good measure, to their to their own uh, institutional inertia because they lost control of the breast cancer field to to the Susan Komen Foundation and many other foundations that have come along. So ACS was very vulnerable because of their ultra conservatism. I mean, their their I don't mean political conservatism, but their unwillingness to accept new ideas. So they were not in a position where they could take very many more blows at that time. And they basically put pressure, one individual in particular, put pressure on Bob Good, the president of Sloan Kettering Institute, at a moment when Good was extremely vulnerable to that kind of pressure. And the whole institute was in a financial crisis. So if ACS had pulled its $4 million contribution out of Sloan Kettering, at that point it would have been a tremendous crisis. Good... Good and the others would have lost their jobs because Lawrence Rockefeller and Ben Schmidt didn't want to have to pay the shortfall for all the, you know, the money that was being lost by Sloan Kettering at that point. So they put pressure on. The other people like the NIH, the Public Health Service, the National Cancer Institute, I mean, I think ego was the biggest driving factor there. They had gone, going back to 1953, they had been issuing these statements saying, we know what the deal is with Laetrile, it doesn't work, don't go anywhere near it. FDA, the same thing. FDA wouldn't approve uh, the clinical trial. And they all, a good, very good book, History Written, about FDA that came out about two years ago, explicitly says that FDA was waiting to line up the anti-laetralists at a number of institutions in order to have them do the trial. You see, they didn't trust the leadership of Sloan Kettering. They were too progressive. So they didn't want to let good and especially Lloyd Old, the vice president of Sloan Kettering, have anything to do with the testing of laetral because then it might have come out positive. They were terrified, I think, of Old because Old was this young, dynamic, brilliant guy, talented, I mean, genius-level guy, who was, if not pro-Laetrile, he was at least very open to any new idea, especially Coley's toxins. He was instrumental in getting that immunotherapy removed from the ACS uh, quack list, but very open to Laetrile. He had all the major Laetrileists come to the to come to the 13th floor of Sloan Kettering and, and give presentations and treated them with respect. And uh, this was unheard of, absolutely unheard of. So it was a little bit, you know, ahead of its time, I would say, and they couldn't prevail. Old ran away. Thomas just caved completely. 
good, just did whatever they, you know, whatever they told him to do. And the only ones who stood firm were, only one really was Dr. Segura. And then, of course, I, I came along as a public relations person and a science writer. I was not involved in the testing, but I just couldn't abide what they were doing. I mean, essentially, they threw Dr. Segura under the bus. I mean, as we would say today, and he just sacrificed his reputation and good name and slandered him in their own publication, said that he was biased, that, that the, he, he had positive results because of his bias, which is fighting for us uh, in science. I, I've continuously seen misinformation and, and very nasty targeted campaigns to discredit people who disrupt the status quo. Some of the physicians I respect the most get the most grief. Some of them had to move from one state to another to continue practicing stuff that's that I've personally seen just transform people's health, but it's it, it's not the common thing. But so it feels to me like cancer therapy, you know, has definitely changed something over the past 40 or so years since all this really went down. Have there been major changes in cancer therapy since then or are we kind of, you know, treading water? Oh, I think there's been major changes. On the plus side, they now know how to give chemotherapy. First of all, they know how to give it in a more humane way. Yeah. So it doesn't have the incredible side effects that I witnessed at Slum Ketter in the 1970s. Not as often. So they've gotten a good handle, partially because they've incorporated complementary medicine into, you know, to a certain degree into convention, as part of a conventional uh, approach. Um, so that's very positive. Chemotherapy is actually quite effective in certain areas, like I'd say the most important of all is preventing recurrences of breast cancer. The numbers are quite striking if you have a very risky, very high-risk kind of breast cancer. The addition of chemotherapy, which has now sort of been settled, which ones to give three, there's the three-drug regimen that's... Uh, it's pretty effective, and this could result in maybe a twenty, let's say, as much as a twenty percent increase in ten-year survival of the people who take it. And I, that's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, you know, this is very important. It's very, very important. Colon cancer as well. We now know that most colon cancers develop from polyps. So if people have colon colonoscopy routinely. Um, Every five years or so, or every three years after, if they found a polyp, then you can prevent most colon cancer. Most people don't realize this. Despite Katie Couric's campaign to get the world to understand this, I bet, you know, most people I talk to have never had a colonoscopy. So there are areas of, of progress without a doubt. I mean, it's a different world. Plus, intellectually speaking, an oncologist from 1974 would hardly recognize the oncology of 2014, because it's all about genes and it's all about targeted drugs and about uh, markers and about um, growth pathways. And, you know, there's all kinds of fascinating stuff going on at the scientific level, but we haven't cracked the basic problem that Laetrile addressed, they stopping the metastases or at least being able to treat, you know, stopping the, the spread of the cancer. There's some very promising leads. Even basic anti-inflammatory drugs may be able to do this, but we don't have any more proof of them either. And I would suggest that has a lot to do with the economics of the situation, that there's very little money to be made from, you know, sort of uh, traditional 
non-steroidal anti-inflammatories like aspirin. So uh, there is less than overwhelming enthusiasm for doing the trials that would prove whether or not aspirin and the other NSAIDs are as effective as they look to be in terms of preventing uh, the spread of cancer. What are the three most exciting new, not yet proven, but maybe with potential uh, breakthroughs in cancer that, that you've come across? Well, you know, I mean, I have my bias, which is towards the, the less toxic complementary yeah. treatments. I just mentioned one of them, which is that, you know, there is some amazing data that's come out of Belgium where they looked at the people who, the women who got uh, anti-inflammatory drugs as part of their anesthesia for their breast cancer surgery uh, and then compared those to receipts who received standard opioid-based um, analgesics and there was like four or five times as many recurrences of the cancer at one to two years, a common time when, when cancers often, breast cancers often recur, than in the women who received, by accident, received the anti-inflammatories. So this wow. is tremendously pr- promising and important. And when you look at the, what's the list of the non-steroidal, excuse me, of the, of the traditional, this was a traditional anti-inflammatory, aspirin and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, over the counter. Yeah. So this is tremendous. The other two things that I think are the most important, both within, well, within the world of conventional therapy and also the world of alternative therapy, if we still use that term, is um, immunotherapy, immune therapy, uh, manipulating or enhancing the immune system so that it attacks the cancer. That was the idea behind the coli's toxins, and it's still very widely practiced in Europe especially, but it's the darling child now of conventional oncology, the so-called uh, anti-PD-1 and anti-PDL-1 drugs, um, this is the hottest item there is. They've just approved, uh, given accelerated approval by the FDA. And um, you're going to see a lot more and hear a lot more about that. So anti-inflammatory immunotherapy, immune therapy. And the third one is hypothermia, heat therapy, the best adjuvant treatment in the world. The one that can be added to almost any other treatment to make it more effective. And there's a tremendous uh, research that's been done on this. I mean, breakthrough research uh, showing that when you add heat therapy to conventional chemotherapy or radiation therapy, you like double the effectiveness of those other treatments. And, and double and the survival. Certainly improve the survival and you double the response rates. And it's blow away research, and this is, goes back now many years, I mean, the result, the earlier results, some of them were even better, but we have rigorous, you know, phase, uh, phase three clinical trials out of Holland and Germany now, I mean, stuff that took years and years and years, maybe decades to put together and get these trials done, and they were highly positive, and everybody in oncology knows they were positive, but what they say at the meetings is, Oh, the problem with that, with hyperthermia, is you can't get it. That's the problem with it. You can't get it. Not in the well, U.S. Sure. Not in the U.S. There's only only three hospitals using the same machinery that they used in Europe to get those results. Three hospitals. And they won't use them because FDA has only approved one indication, cervical cancer, stages 
stages two and three. I mean, it's literally going to take thousands of years at the current pace before uh, hyperthermia will be fully in the U.S. So, you know, it's also interesting. So I'll say one quick thing: is that going back to the U.S. and going back to like. You know, why would they do this? Hyperthermia was tested pretty rigorously at, at Duke University in North Carolina. They were given yeah. permission for, I believe, phase three randomized by the FDA. And the moment that occurred, the NIH came in and ripped all of their funding away from them. So you can make what you want of that as well. While 125 clinics in Germany are giving this and it's all over Holland. So with hyperthermia, you actually take the blood out, heat the blood up, and put it back in, if memory serves. I, okay, there's, there's some technique like that. But So how does hyperthermia work, the real short version, because we're running up towards the end of the show, but I'm sure some people listening are interested. They just run a current through the tumor by putting an electrode on one side and, a, and a, another one on the other side. That's, that's the main way. Oh, interesting. Dinner plate-sized. Uh, electrodes. I mean, they just sit on the sit on top of the patient, and then the, the current goes through. The current may also be part of the treatment. Uh, that's a big yeah. discussion. I, I I suspect it is. Okay. Yes, you can put somebody in a tent and heat up the tent. Either heat up water, or actually use infrared or microwave or whatever. You can heat the person, whole person. That's whole body hyperthermia. Yeah. As Eric said, there's 125 clinics at least in Germany using that right now. That's whole body. The FDA bans whole body, and the one clinic, the one clinical situation to give whole body hyperthermia was shut down uh, two years ago for lack of funding. I, I know we're getting towards the top of the hour, and I just want to get make sure I get a few things in. Yeah, Eric, uh, first of all. Uh, this, this film, considering how challenging the subject matter is and how polarizing it can be, um, is doing remarkably well beyond our expectations. We got a great review in the New York Times. The Daily News said, though it's a documentary, it's just as thrilling as The Insider you know, with Russell Crowe about big tobacco. Well, uh, we're in five cities theatrically. By the time your listeners hear this, it'll be right before our big opening at the AMC Pacific Place 11 in Seattle. And basically the AMC is giving us a shot uh, at possibly going wow. nationwide with this. It all comes down to that opening weekend at the AMC Pacific Place 11 in Seattle. Any Seattle listeners, we sort of beg of you to come out. And in fact, if you come out and approach me and say, I heard you on Bulletproof Radio, I will give you a free DVD signed uh, just for coming out to this theater opening weekend, September 19th, September 20, or September 21. You should mention that I'll be giving a, a lecture with question and answer. Correct. Uh, so and you also, if you show up to the AMC, take your ticket stub. Again, Seattle, Pacific Place 11, Monday night, the 22nd of September, we're going to host a free Q&A with Ralph discussing all his expertise to anyone who wants to listen, have a nice Q&A afterwards, and it'll be free for those who have purchased a ticket for the AMC that weekend. So, Eric, one thing I'll ask you to do is uh, make sure that you send me an email with all that info right after us recording the show. I'm going to do my best to get the show edited with all the audio quality and all that so we can get it up ahead of time. But if we don't hit that window, what I will do is I'll put this out on social media and we'll do what we can to make sure that the Seattle area gets to see this. And fortunately, I have a lot of the Bulletproof teams in Seattle. I'm you know, 45 minutes away in Victoria, at least if you like float planes. So uh, uh, I'm not sure I can come down that weekend, uh, but I'll do my best. And we'll make sure that we get the word out because this is the sort of thing where it, it is an exciting story. It, it is a really good movie. And I... I'm really hoping that for listeners who, who sat here and listened, you guys have made something special. And Ralph is, is an incredibly credible, believable guy, amazing credentials. 
who's spent his life looking at the sum total of cancer treatments, not rejecting chemo uh, or you know looking at it as as a blind thing where it's just going to work no matter what. So, if you really want to kind of understand how scientific research in general gets biased by organizational hubris, inability to admit that they're wrong, and things like that. We see this happening in our society over and over. It's happened in this scenario, at least we think, and there's room for more research on Laetrile. But it's happened with the low-fat diet. I mean, this came about from a 28-year-old guy who'd never treated an obese person throughout a a, a theory, and the government didn't want to admit it was wrong. So here we are, millions of people suffering and obese later, kind of scratching their heads going, what just happened to us? And what just happened was... uh, a breakdown of core basic science for whatever political reasons. Uh, and I don't think it's really a John Birch situation either. It's just organizational hubris, and it's not even one evil person. It's many people making many small decisions to just bias things in the direction that's convenient or less fearful. Right. Yeah, I agree. There's a great parallel there. Now. You guys have a petition that I also think listeners would be interested in hearing about with change.org. Sure. If you go to secondopinionfilm.com, you can't miss the banner to find that. You can also read all of the reviews. You can look at all the documents we discussed and uh, evaluate them for yourself. Trailer, all the dates for the tour, the film, everything's there. Secondopinionfilm.com. Awesome. And in fact, it's great because I was about to ask you guys for that. And this will be in the show notes as well, but it is, it's a film that's worth watching. And it's not just about cancer. It's a story about how politics change health research. And this matters for all of us because it's happening right now with other sets of science altogether. You, you want to know what else is very exciting that we should put in? Uh, unbelievably uh, exciting and unexpected on August the 19th, two huge universities, research centers in Germany, decided they're going to tackle amygdalin or laetrile. Um, and it, one, and it, they published it in Plus One, just came out August the 19th, unrelated to our release. We're very uh, blown away by it. And it, it, there it is. It's, it blocks cancer growth in vitro. And they want to continue. Ralph's been in touch with them. Okay. And they actually want to do a genuinely well-designed clinical trial in people over there. So that's unbelievable you oh. know, to go along with the release of this. So. Our old- our ultimate goal would be to help them financially to do that trial. Yeah, that's, Maybe. That, that's if we are successful enough. Yeah, if, this film. if this film goes nationwide, we have a nonprofit sympathetic to us. We can theoretically raise a, a whole lot of money through the film as a springboard for the Germans to do this. Uh, definitely, uh, definitely consider a crowdfunding campaign too. Um, there's so many people who've had cancer touch their lives. Um, I've I've lost relatives to cancer. And it, it, I know from my, my work in anti-aging that, that we're not doing everything we could do and that some of the things that are most promising may not hit the, the market if they ever do for 30 or 40 years at the current rate. So uh, I, I think you'll find that there's a lot of community passion for unbiased but open-minded science that is, is driven by making people well uh, rather than corporate interests combined with making people well. There's a question uh, that I've asked everyone who's, who's been on the show, and I want to ask both of you the question kind of separately because you're at different stages in your careers and you do very different things. And the question is, what three pieces of advice would you have from your journey? And not just dealing with Laetrile, but 
just in life, that three pieces of advice for people who want to perform better. So people who want to kick more ass at life, not at work or whatever else. Uh, what, what are the three most important things you've learned that you'd offer them? Uh, Eric, why don't you go first? Sure. I actually had to write it down, so I'm going to read if you don't mind. <laughs> My number one is just to stay absolutely true to yourself and follow your gut and your, what your instinct and gut tells you, and even if everyone around you thinks you're absolutely crazy. And uh, number two, I find that failing at something is the only way to learn anything. Many people uh, fail at something and they you know, have a difficult time dusting themselves off. I find that my failures are something I should embrace. And it, of course, makes my successes even more valuable. Um, there's only one way to learn. I can't, you know, a parent always wants you not to fail at things, but in reality, they should just let you fail <laughs> so you can learn the hard way. Um, my last thing I would say is just take chances. And for me, personally, I've had to ignore everything my sort of indoctrinated educational sort of system has given me and taught me. I had to sort of throw it all away and start over. Because in my opinion, every single human being that's made a difference in our world, whether it be Steve Jobs or uh, Elon Musk or whomever, including yourself, have done so by going against what has been told and taught. You know, look at people like Albert Einstein and all of them. You can name them forever. But, but they, they're not, they pushed against what they're told and what, what has been established. And they stepped outside of bounds and they succeeded. And I find that, in my opinion, if they hadn't have done that, they wouldn't have been successful. If they had stuck to the so-called rules, they wouldn't have made it. So I hope that answers that, those three. Oh, that's a wonderful set of answers. Thank you, Eric. Ralph, what do you think? Well, my sort of my philosophical answer is to question authority. I think in particular, that means question the institutions that set themselves up as the experts on health advice and health matters, not just the American Cancer Society, but I think all the other major institutions of fundraise, don't be, don't be overly impressed by the so-called nonprofit status that, you know, that certain institutions have because they can be just as prejudiced, if not more so, than for-profit institutions. In particular, though, I'm very fired up about the whole diabetes epidemic. Seventy-five percent of the people who are 70 who make it to the age of 70 in the United States are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. That's a figure I recently read. So I would say that if you are suffering from ill health, you should always suspect diabetes. And if you're gaining weight over what you were, let's say, when you were in high school or college, I mean, that would be the first thing that I would look to, and I would really try very hard to nail down whether or not this, uh, this problem is creeping up on you. We're actually extremely fortunate in that there is a little device called the glucometer or glucose meter that you can buy for like 12 bucks, <laughs> and you can, te- you can test your own blood uh, on a pretty regular basis to see how much glucose or sugar there is in your system. That sugar is not an innocuous thing. It can glycate or cope, you cope with sugar. You're not only your red blood cells, but your white blood cells diminish your uh, immunity. It can get into your kidneys, get into your eyes. I mean, this is extremely toxic. I remember when I was a kid, you know, they used to talk about people uh, pouring uh, uh, corn syrup into people's uh, gas tanks, their cars, you know, to, to punish them or to get even. Well, I mean, in a way, we're doing that in our own society. All of the sugar, the high fructose corn syrup, the 
the, the rampant carbs that we, that we consume that are unnatural to our bodies, uh, this is like corn syrup in our gas tank. It's going, it, it gums up our, you know, put it in simple terms, our whole works. So I would say be very proactive with your health, very proactive. Use a, use a glucometer if you have any reason to believe that you you might be this might be creeping up on you. Get A one C test done by your physician to see what your glucose has been over the past four months or so. Take your blood pressure routinely. Take your, get a get an app that that tests your pulse. See how that's going. Be proactive because you know once the dam breaks, it's very hard <laughs> to fix it. Do this ahead of time. And you can reverse these things, absolutely can reverse them. And by the way, there's a lot of good research going on now to look to examine the connection between high blood glucose and cancer. Cancer cells yeah. are avid consumers of glucose. They love that high glucose environment. And by reducing the amount of glucose, you may be able to also reduce the virulence of the cancer. I've had Dominic D'Agostino on talking about ketosis and cancer uh, on the show. And it, it's amazing what happens when you stop burning sugar as fuel for a while. The cancer really doesn't like that very much. Very much not. And, and, and the biggest myth, one of the biggest myths going is that if you don't get 60 or 120 grams of carbohydrates, you'll die, you'll fall down, <laughs> your brain is but you can become keto adapted. Surely your body is running on ketones. You have tremendous energy and you feel better and you look better. And how bad could it be? Your numbers get better. Your triglycerides get better. Your cholesterol. So there is some unbelievable myth at the core of the generalized health advice that the American public is getting and has been getting since the day you, you referenced Ansel Keys. You know, the, the guy, quote, unquote, invented the low-fat diet, got onto the cover of Time magazine. But we're, you know, it's a myth-bound culture. We're running after following advice that has no factual basis to it. But it's incredibly profitable for, for the big corporations to sell you these, you know, concocted foods that are really, really bad for you. So my, my advice is twofold. You, you, you need to pursue this. But you also need to use your intelligence. That's the most important tool of all and your critical intelligence. If you try to do, change your diet and it goes against the standard advice of the culture, the minute anything happens uh, adverse or you have run into any kind of waves or bumps or whatever, you're going to be at a tremendous loss if you don't know how to investigate these questions yourself. So I come back to question authority because you have to think, are these so-called authorities really as smart as they say they are and really as objective as they claim to be? And I would say not always. Well, that, that, is, uh, that is amazing advice. Uh, would you guys one more time uh, name your, the URL, talk about the dates and where people can learn more about this, uh, the dates in Seattle, just so they hear it one more time? Sure. It's secondsopinionfilm.com. And uh, you know, even if you're not in Seattle, uh, it's available on demand as well. That's The links are all very clear on the website. It's, we have a Vimeo on demand and, of course, Blu-rays and DVDs. But uh, 
Yes, and the Seattle opening is uh, the most important weekend uh, is what it all boils down to is Friday, September the 19th, Saturday, September the 20th, and Sunday, the 21st of September. And we are going to try to be there as, as many times as the theater will allow us to be Q&As. And we're going to get a place really close by and be there and do Q&As as much as possible. We found that every time we did Q&As, like say in New York, um, the place was basically sold out. And in fact, it did so well in New York, they extended it a week. So uh-huh. we want to take advantage of the fact that people want to hear us talk after seeing the film and try to be there and uh, and again if you go to the amc that weekend save your ticket stub we're going to have a free lecture with ralph monday night we'll we'll announce uh, where that will be and if you show up to the amc um, and, and you see me there uh, and you say that you saw uh, or heard about this on Bulletproof, I will happily give you a signed copy of uh, the DVD of this film. By the way, the DVD also has an extra whole movie attached to it uh, on, that is not playing in the theaters. I, there's so much to the story. I added another 74 minutes of footage and clips and interviews that pertain to where Laetrile went since the story uh, and where Wealth has gone since, where where the cancer industry really has gone since these days. So, Do you guys mind if I, if I can convince a few of uh, Team Bulletproof people to show up with a few extra t-shirts. You up for that? Oh, I'm totally up for that. All right. Are you kidding me? Oh, yes. Uh, let me see if I can twist the arm to go to a free movie. <laughs> All right. We'll, we'll make that happen. And finally, uh, I'm going to hit you guys up. I've been spending the last six months making a documentary. It's not done yet on uh, toxic mold in our environment and in our homes and its link actually to cancer as well as a host of other inflammatory and neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, interviewing experts around the country as well as people who've been exposed and, and are affected by what they eat and what they breathe. So uh, I have no idea. I've never made a documentary before, but I've invested a huge amount of, of just passion and time and, frankly, and money in doing it. So you guys got into theaters. Holy crap, that's amazing. So I'm going to call you later and pick your brain so I can... I can ask how to do the same thing with the movie that's going to help people. <laughs> I'd love to share my experience. It was a huge hustle, huge learning experience. And um, I feel like I have created a well-oiled machine for my next movie. Yeah, it's a long conversation. I'll be happy to talk to you. Oh, lovely. Thank you so much. And thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio today. Have an awesome day. Thanks, you too. Thank you. If you're looking for a way to know which foods are making you weak, check out the free app called Bulletproof Food Sense. This is an awesome app. Bulletproof Food Sense is free and it makes a huge difference in how you manage and control your stress. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.